0: This past week, I was reading an article, and uh, the author said he once heard someone pray this Lord, teach us to pray big prayers. So much of what we pray is just details. And as I thought about that, I thought, that's a fairly challenging thought. Um, it's not that the details of our lives don't matter. We just prayed about some of the details of our lives. But sometimes I wonder if our prayers suffer a little bit because our vision is so narrow and rather than expanded. I sometimes wonder if when we're praying, we're just looking out into our own backyard and we're not taking a look over the fence at the rest of the world and all of the various things that could be prayed for. If if we truly want to hallow the name of God, which we looked at last week, uh, we're going to believe what He says. And then we're going to act on that belief by praying big prayers. uh, uh, Prayers that require an almighty God, uh, an incomprehensible God uh, to answer them. Uh, Today, we come to the second petition in the Lord's Prayer as we're in this series regarding the Lord's Prayer, and uh, thy kingdom come, King James Version, or your kingdom come if you're in the NIV. It's as though in this petition, God is saying to us, ask me for something big, ask me for something hard, ask me to send my kingdom to your earth. That's big. It's, It's a lot bigger than asking God to give you a good time on your vacation in Florida, Or asking God, well, what do I get Uncle Henry for his uh, birthday? Um, As we see later in our journey in the Lord's Prayer, it's not that we shouldn't bring the details of our life before the Lord, even the tiniest details. But if all we do is pray about the smaller things of life, then I think we miss the world-changing power of prayer that God has ordained for the church. Thy kingdom come. That's a serious business. On one level, you're asking God to send Jesus back and to bring down the curtain on human history as we have known it. Uh, at another level, you're essentially inviting God to invade your personal world and transform it for His reign to be supreme in the world but also in your life. And that's where we're going to look today. Thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we say thank you for the opportunity we've had so far to worship, uh, to reveal some of our burdens to you. Uh, Right now, though, Lord, I pray that we can kind of trust you with those things and just focus on what you would have us to understand from your holy word. Might our hearts and and minds be open. Lord, each and every one of us needs to hear something today from you. It might be different for different people. So, Lord, whatever you so desire, meet us and teach us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I wanna begin our study of thy kingdom come. Uh, As I said, I typically will use as our title the King James Version, uh, the one that most of us learned when we were growing up. Uh, Two simple uh, observations about this particular petition. First of all, it's the shortest of all of the petitions. It's the shortest. Uh, In English, you can see it's three words, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come. In Greek, it's only four words and uh, makes it the shortest petition of all of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. However, length does not determine the significance or the importance. In fact, in some ways, brevity in this case elevates the significance as well as its placement within the course of these petitions. Um, so it's shortest. It's, the second observation is it's an imperative. It's a command, um, and, and that's really emphasized because in the original language in the Greek, the verb is at the beginning of the petition. So you could translate it rightfully, come, kingdom of God. Uh, when you say your kingdom come, uh, it's basically saying, I know your kingdom's coming one day, and until then, give me patience until that day finally arrives. And there's nothing wrong with the petition, there's nothing wrong with thinking about it that way. It's very biblical. In fact, we're called to be patient as we await the return of the Lord. But when you pray, come, kingdom of God, there is a note of urgency in it, of intensity. And so what we're essentially feel like we're praying is, Lord, let your kingdom come right here, right now, right now, today. To pray this way means that we are not satisfied with the status quo, that we look around us and we recognize that things could and should be better in the world around us. When I when I read this and I studied the, the grammar aspect and, and realized it's saying come kingdom of God that there was an urgency and intensity to it it reminded me of the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 at the very end the final words of Jesus is I am coming soon and then John the apostle John who is the one who has this incredible revelation given to him he replies this way Amen come Lord Jesus there was an urge See an intensity about it. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. There's there's an urgency in this prayer. It's an imperative. The next thought, though, that we have is then what is the kingdom of God that we're praying for? What what is it? Um, It it clearly is a very crucial topic. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have taught us to pray this in terms of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And if you take a quick look through the Gospels especially the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it reveals that the, the phrases kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, his kingdom, kingdom, those, one combination or another of those, it, it, it's dozens and dozens of times that Jesus mentions this. It, and he does so regularly to his disciples. So it's not, a, it's not a small subject. And Jesus is saying, when we pray, we are to petition, come, kingdom of God but what is the kingdom of God? Well, if you ask 10 theologians what it is, you'll get 10 different answers. There'll be some overlap. You know, they won't totally disagree. But uh, the reason for that is because it's never quite clearly defined in the scriptures. Jesus doesn't take a moment and say, now here's what the kingdom of God is. It's just referenced often enough. So you have to draw out of the context of the references what it begins to mean. But the fact of the matter is when I say kingdom, Most of us have in mind an earthly kingdom. You have a king. To be a king, you normally have to have subjects, people that are subject to your reign, your rule, your dominion. That's generally, in earthly terms, it's found in a geographically defined area. There's a boundary around it. And that's what we think of when we think of kingdom. But a a literal place where there is a king, people, rules, and ground. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. William Barclay, a 20th century commentator on the scripture, said this about the kingdom of God. He said, it is a society upon earth in which God's will is as perfectly done as it is in heaven. Uh, I didn't like the word society when I read that. Uh, It's a little flat, a little um, clinical for me. And so uh, I like this definition better. It is God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessings. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Did you know that there was one place that existed just like that? Anybody want to tell me where it was at? Eden. Eden was that perfect dominion. God the king and his subjects, Adam and Eve, subject to his reign, and yet under his full blessing. Until what? Until they sinned. And God closed down the gates of Eden. This prayer is about restoring paradise to this place. For his people to be under his reign and his blessing. The kingdom of God is, first of all, it's a defined, a redeemed group of men and women. And they are on earth. And thirdly, it's where the will of God is done in accordance with his domain. But why is this kingdom of God so important? There's still that little bit of a nagging question for me. Why would Jesus speak it over and over again to his disciples and most importantly, why would He make the kingdom of God a petition within the Lord's prayer? Why would He tell us that this needs to be something that becomes the subject of our prayers as His people? Well, I'm going to give you four answers, and that's, that's what we're going to spend the majority of our time on that I think help us understand why this is an important part of our prayer life as God's children. The first reason is because the kingdom of God is important because it was the central issue the central focus of the ministry of Jesus. It says that the the kingdom of God is what Jesus came to proclaim. He came to establish. And he talks about it in various ways over and over again. I'm going to throw some verses up on the screen, or Bill is. And, And look at Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for that is why I was sent. Luke 17.21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then finally in John 18, verses 36 and 37, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. This is Jesus speaking with Pilate, so he's, he's in the midst of his trial. And he goes on, he says, you are right I, in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I give you those verses because it shows that when Jesus began his ministry, he announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. Later on, he says it's the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says that the preaching of the kingdom of God was the reason he had been sent to earth. At the end of his ministry, he tells Pontius Pilate that this kingdom was not of this world but from another place, meaning it's not a kingdom that men create, Pilate. It's a kingdom that my father and I create. You see, Jesus came to establish a new kingdom on this earth, a kingdom that would be made up of men and women who are fully dedicated to doing the will of God. That's the reason that when he was here, the kingdom of God was at hand. Why? Because the king was here. The king was in our midst. But the kingdom that he would establish would be fundamentally different from any kingdom of this world because it would call for a moral and a spiritual commitment from those who follow Christ. And that's a crucial point that distinguishes the kingdom of God from the kingdom of any world or any kingdom on the world, any earthly kingdom. Being an earthly king- kingdom is basically a matter of geography. And in many ways, if you're in a kingdom and you're a subject to a king or a queen, it's, it's, it's just because you were born there. But that's not the case with Jesus' kingdom. He said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The kingdom of God is reserved for those who recognize and follow the truth as revealed and proclaimed in Jesus Christ. That's the life commitment that Jesus demands from those who want to be in his kingdom. He's telling us, you want to be in my kingdom. Well, then that's great, but you have to become a follower of the truth. You can't remain neutral on the truth, and I am the truth. You can't remain neutral on me. You have to get off the fence and make a commitment morally and spiritually to me, or you will never be in the kingdom of God. And I think that helps explain why people of our world never quite understand the people of the kingdom. Uh, We have made a moral and spiritual commitment to the truth and that commitment guides everything that we do, or it should. Uh, We we, kind of start from a different place in viewing the world. We, we, We look at life a different way. We make decisions based on a different set of values. And so we end up in a different place and, and this applies all the way across the board in all aspects of our life. It, it applies to how we raise our children, to how we spend our money, how we treat our neighbor, how we treat the guy or the gal that we don't like, how we work, even how we vote. Our commitment to truth forever separates us from the people of the world, which is why they don't understand us and they often think these people are crazy, they're nuts. But we are not crazy but we are different. The kingdom of God is reserved for people who are fundamentally different from the people of the world, why? Because they recognize their kingdom is not geographically defined, but it is rather has to do with the reign of God. Which is why the kingdom comes first to the hearts of men and women as they surrender themselves to Jesus Christ in faith. That's where it begins. And since that's true, then we know that this kingdom does not spread through political power. It spreads through the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. It spreads as people choose one by one to follow Christ. A lot more could be said about this, but I I, want to make sure I honor the time that we have. But let let me just say this. To at least say what I've said makes clear that the kingdom of God was central to the ministry of Jesus. It's the reason he came to earth. That, it was that important to him, and therefore, what's important to him should be important to us. And that's one reason why Jesus says we're to pray, come, kingdom of God. But there's a second reason, and that's because the kingdom of God is the only thing that will last forever. Let me mention a name to you, Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor. How many of you know Zach? Raise your hands. Yeah, just a handful of us. Who was he? Says the teacher in the back. <laughs> yeah, he was the president of the United States. Which one? The 10th? It might have been the 12th. I'm not sure. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, he died. You're right. He's gone, right? Yeah. You make my point. The only reason we remember him is because a few people that teach history once in a while have to teach about him. I haven't thought about Zachary Taylor since I was in junior high school, and I didn't think much about him then. Well, a few years ago, they, uh, there had been this theory that Zachary Taylor had been poisoned, and that's why he died, arsenic. And so uh, through the work of his family cooperating with all of the authorities, they dug him up, and scientists went to examine him. By the way, they proved that he did not die by arsenic poison. He died because of some kind of a combination of cold cherries and cold milk. Okay? So be careful if you're eating cherries and drinking milk at the same time. But they, 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 they said he died of those causes. And, uh, but here's what they found when they opened up uh, the remains. They found uh, his teeth. They found his bones. They found his fingernails, and they found bits of his clothing. Everything else, gone. By the way, it was 140 years plus between the time he died and when they dug him up. One newspaper said this, We know more about Zachary Taylor than we ever knew before, and more than we ever wanted to know. Another story called him the most obscure president in American history, which could be uh, contested because the guy that followed him was Millard Fillmore who is generally the topic of a trivia question from time to time. Here's my, here's the irony of it. When Zachary Taylor died, he was the president of the United States, but he was more than that. He was considered one of the greatest men in America. He had been a war hero, he was a general, who had led the armies in the Mexican War, won won the decisive battle of the Mexican War and was then made president. He was elected president. He was the Eisenhower, so to speak, for those of us or my generation. He was the Eisenhower of that day. War hero becomes president, one of the greatest Americans of his day. And yet he's just a dim memory for most of us, if at all, other than some teachers and some of his descendants, no one remembers. He's living proof of what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 9.5. For the living know that that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Even the memory of the dead is forgotten. There's a lesson. If you're counting on somebody remembering you after you're gone, forget about it. Because sooner or later, you're just going to be a name on a tombstone. I'm going to share something I shared in the early service. Get done on time, I hope. Let me tell you what happens when you die. Your family calls up the funeral home or calls up the church, and a nice service is planned for you. And some nice people stand up, and they speak nice things about you. Then they take your body, and they either put it in the ground, or they take your ashes, they put it in a crypt, or they spread them out like fertilizer. And then when all of that's done, the family and friends all go back often to your house and have a party and they eat food that you probably purchased. (laughs) And then after the party, they get back in their cars and they go home and they go on with the rest of their life. Some of you may think, well, gee, cynical, it's reality. And the fact of the matter is, is uh, uh, if I die before you do, that's what's going to happen with me. And before long, the only people that will remember me are a few friends and some family, and then a few, another generation later, there'll be fewer of them, and I'll just be a name on a tombstone. What's your point, Mr. Debbie Downer? <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for lasting significance and importance in this world, you're wasting your life. All of the things that we seek to give ourselves significance by, you know, the degrees after our names, the houses we buy, the money we save, the cars we drive, the vacations we take, the empires we build, the relationships that we seek, all of that, those things will amount to nothing at the end of the day. If you're living for this world, you are among all people to be pitied. And here's what really saddens my heart as a pastor is that many of us as believers live exactly like that, thinking this is what life is all about and not the kingdom of God. Nothing in this world lasts forever, friends. Just ask Zachary Taylor if you ever see him. Now, I say all that because I want you to hang on with to this because there's such an incredibly encouraging word in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. God is going to give us something. Look at what He gives us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not an earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. Everything in this world is shakable. Buildings crumble, companies go bankrupt, academic degrees and the ink that they're written in all fade. Our houses age, creak, and they have to be repaired over and over again. Our cars rust out. And worst of all, our bodies eventually are wasted. They just get used up. But the kingdom of God is forever. When the the angel came to Mary, what did the angel promise her? He said that you will give birth to a son who will rule over the house of his father Jacob and of his kingdom there will be no end. God intends to establish a kingdom on this earth that will last forever a kingdom that will be made up of men and women who have decided they're going to live the values that God has given them, heavenly values, kingdom of God values. So we have a choice. Any one of us, we can live for this world or we can live for the kingdom of God. And that's a choice that we get to make. And that kingdom will last forever. That's the second reason the kingdom of God is such an important thing to be praying about and why it's so important to Jesus. The third reason is because the kingdom of God gives a purpose, a meaning, a goal, a history. Where is history going? Philosophers have been asking that question for thousands of years. Um, is history nothing more than, as Shakespeare put it in Macbeth, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Or maybe we should accept the Hindu view that, that, that history is an endless cycle of reincarnation. Or should we adopt that humanistic view that, said that we came from a pool of slime over the course of a million years or billion years? Or should we conclude with the fatalists that life is meaning and some fatalists say that life is nothing more than a cul-de-sac, it just goes nowhere? The question about history is important because the way you view history ultimately, it's going to shape the way you view your own life. If you believe that history is going nowhere, then your life is just a momentary blip on the radar screen and it just passes through and then it goes off the screen, never to be seen again. If history has no goal, then life has no ultimate meaning. And every person is left to their own device. And you know what that ultimately leads to? Chaos, anarchy. But the Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches that history is His story. It's the record of God's dealings with the human race. The Bible teaches that the universe came into a definite beginning at a definite time and a definite cause. It teaches that man did not accidentally come up from some amino acid ooze, that God created man with a purpose and a history, and history is that story of God's slow revelation, that unfolding of his purpose on earth. The Old Testament they spoke again and again of the coming kingdom of God to earth. Abraham caught a glimpse of it. Moses saw it from afar. David learned about it directly from revelation from God himself. The major and the minor prophets, they kind of filled in some of the details. The Old Testament writers foresaw a time when the Messiah of God would rule the earth from David's throne, specifically in Jerusalem. If you put all of those pieces together and, and you really study it, you realize they're talking about a coming age where there will be peace upon all of the earth, a paradise, Eden restored. A day, as the prophet says, when the lion will lie down with the lamb, and all the nations will stream to Jerusalem. And then the New Testament adds two very important pieces to the puzzle. It says, first of all, that the promised Messiah, that the Old Testament uh, prophets were prophesying, it said that that the one who will rule is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And then the second piece of the puzzle that the New Testament adds is that the kingdom of God will not be fully established until Jesus the King returns to this earth. We call it the second coming. That's where history's going. I don't care what they're doing in Washington these days or the UN. I care to some extent because we have to live with those consequences, but I don't care ultimately. Why? Because we're headed to God's destined end, the kingdom of God on this earth, with the king of kings reigning. My friends, that's the goal to which everything is moving. That's the last chapter of the story that began in the Garden of Eden. So when you pray, your kingdom come, when you pray, come, kingdom of God, you're you're linking yourself with the faithful of the ages that looked around on this shattered, this broken world and concluded, there's got to be something better than this. Look right now through the haze of history. Oh, but as people of God, we look to that time when the Lord Jesus Christ will reign on the earth in person. And so in a deeper sense, when you pray this prayer, this petition, you're asking God to hasten that day when Christ himself will descend from heaven and he will assume that rightful place as ruler of all things. That's the reason the angels, to, the, to those followers of Christ in Acts chapter 1, this is when Christ had, had risen from the dead and he's been teaching his disciples. And then it says in Acts chapter 1 that he was ascended into heaven. And the angels say this to the, those who were there, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, I like the way the King James puts it, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He ascended into heaven and one day he will return. If you realize that that is an incredibly shocking thought, you believe a man who once walked on this planet 2,000 years ago, who disappeared suddenly from the earth, is one day coming back. The King James says, This same Jesus, this same one who, who healed a woman that touched the hem of his garment, the same Jesus who, who healed a, a man of leprosy. The same Jesus that broke bread and and served fish to 5,000. The same one who told a man named Nicodemus that you must be born again. The same one who caused the lame to walk, the blind to see. The same one who walked on. That same Jesus, he's coming back. Oh, amen? We believe that this Jesus who died on the cross... Rose from the dead is actually, literally, bodily, physically, personally returning to earth one day. He's not sending a representative. He's not sending a text. He's coming. One day, he's coming back. No wonder the world thinks we're crazy. If you stop and think what we believe, it truly is an out-of-the-world truth. My friends, the world is still in darkness, but here and there, followers of Jesus have established outposts of the kingdom, pinpoints of light that shine into the darkness. All those little outposts of light of the kingdom of followers of Jesus, they're praying, come kingdom of God. And as they do, they set their gaze to the eastern gate, eastern gate of Jerusalem, because one day, king of kings will come walking through. And all of their hopes and all of their prayers will have been answered in that moment. Come, kingdom of God. That day has not yet come, but it will come. And whether it's near or far, Jesus will establish on earth, a kingdom that will know no end. My friends, that is the last chapter of the annals of history. That's why the kingdom of God is all important. (laughs) That is why your kingdom come is a petition in the Lord's Prayer. You are praying for the whole program of God to find its completion and the counter-kingdom, the counterfeit kingdom of Satan, to be finally defeated and destroyed. I got one more reason. I'm just getting wound up. Number Reason number four. Why is this important? Because the kingdom of God is the only possible explanation why some people live the way they do. it's the reason that probably strikes closest to your heart. Without the kingdom of God, it's impossible to explain the way that some of us choose to live. There are men and women all around us who although they seem like they're just going about their normal days, that the world would say, oh, that's pretty normal, yet they behave very differently. I submit to you that when you examine the lives of those who are truly living according to the values of the kingdom, you will find that that's what connects them. Christ the king and his kingdom. They've decided to seek first the kingdom of God. Remember, that was one of the questions, one of the commands that Jesus gave you. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these things that you worry about, he'll take care of it. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's, that's the reason men and women live differently in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of earth. Jesus predicted that that would happen. He taught us that the kingdom of God changes the values of life. It leads to unusual and otherwise inexplicable behavior. When you sign up for the kingdom of God, you you parachute directly into a war zone. You're leaving a life that may make sense to the world to pursue a life that may not make sense to the world, but it makes sense to you because you know the king and you know his kingdom. I have some friends, actually Joe and I have friends, their name is Tom and Linda, and they left the security of their jobs to become missionaries when their kids were still living at home. Uh, They first served in the Philippines, and then God ultimately brought them to Kenya. Um, And since going to Kenya, they've established a school, uh, a children's home, and a medical clinic for children in Kenya that have been abandoned, Uh, either abandoned because of uh, the death of parents, often diseased, uh, or because of violence. And um, in doing that, they themselves have faced the threat of disease, of uh, violence, roving gangs, Uh, thugs. Uh, Tom, I know because I I get his newsletter, twice has had a gun put to his temple and told to leave. They're going to kill him twice. In other words, in following the, the kingdom of God in their life, they have put their lives at risk. Now, could they have lived in America and been safe? Yeah. Could they have lived in America and made more money? Yes. Well, couldn't they have used that to support other missionaries? Yes. Could they have lived in America and, and found that their kids were closer to the grandparents and all that that can mean? Yeah. But they chose, because of the kingdom of God in their life, they chose to take the most productive years of their life and invest it in another land for the sake of the kingdom. They decided that those kingdom values were worth more than the values of the world. They decided that the kingdom of God in their life was something that the world could never give them, no matter what the kingdom was that the world offered Am I suggesting that living for the kingdom means you're all going to pack up and go to Kenya? No. But if you ever decide to make the kingdom of God truly the first priority in your life, you may not become a missionary, but you will become fundamentally a different person. Fundamentally a different person from the world around you. And the choices that you make in your life will continually be misunderstood because you're living for a value that the people of the world will never understand. Never. And even though you decide to make the kingdom of God your priority, that doesn't mean that you're going to live anything other than a mundane life. It doesn't mean that you have to go to Nepal or Swaziland or Bolivia or Kenya. You don't even have to move to another county. You can do it right where you're at. Because you see, the kingdom of God is not a matter of geography. It's a matter of your heart. You become a kingdom man, a kingdom woman when you decide to live by the values that matter to God, righteousness, holiness, humility, compassion, zeal, sacrifice, charity, joy, and forgiveness. Friends, every time you pray, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, come kingdom of God. Every time you pray that, you're either praying his kingdom come or your kingdom come. Whenever you truly, sincerely ask, God, your kingdom come, it's not only that Christ will return and to do so soon, but it's so that your life will be different. And that means that you're praying, my kingdom go. His kingdom can't reign in your kingdom. He has to have it all. They can't coexist. Those who pray your kingdom come will never be sorry. Never be sorry. Don't rely on me for that. Rely on the words of Christ. Whatever you may have to give up to live in the kingdom of God, you know you will receive many more fold in eternity. And that's the promise Christ gives to each of us. Thy kingdom come. Come, kingdom of God. Father, we come before you and we say thank you for This prayer, what a platform for teaching and understanding, expanding our understanding of kingdom living. Father, I pray that for those of us that don't know Christ, maybe today would be the day that they say, I want to be in that kingdom. I want to be in the kingdom that never knows any end. So today, maybe, Lord, they might put their faith in Christ. I pray your Holy Spirit moves in their heart. And they say today, I put my trust and my faith in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation and for my future. And for those of us, Lord, that know Christ, Lord, we recognize this is not a one and done, all that it was. It's a series of battles. It's a series just like any conquering king. He comes in, he takes a little territory, then a little more, then a little more. Well, Lord, that's the way it is in my life, maybe in the lives of all of us. So I pray that your kingdom will continuously find victories in our life while our little kingdoms get pushed out. And I pray you'll find us to be willing subjects for that. Lord, you can't change the world if you can't change us. So might we become agents of change for the kingdom that belongs to you. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name.